evening. So if you've got your Bible, 2 Corinthians 2, 12 through 17, let me read it for us. Paul says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in the triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. I wonder if you've had a similar experience to the one that I have. When when I was in middle school, uh, specifically going from 6th to 7th grade, I switched from going to Bell Shoals, which is a private school, to Progress Village, which is a totally sick school. And that experience was a little shocking um, because the culture of those two uh, academic institutions were very different. I'll, I'll just put it that way. But one of the things that I experienced going into Progress Village was this obsession with... Um, Romance, as far as middle schoolers are capable of even understanding what that is. Uh, and so it felt like every single period it was who likes who, who's dating who, who held whose hand, uh, who got whose AIM account. That's AOL Instant Messenger for those of you who don't know what that is. Uh, that was just the thing. And, and I remember sitting in class maybe in second or third period and somebody saying, hey, Stevie, is Susie in your next class? I'm making these names up. I don't know anybody by either of these names, um, hopefully. And uh, yeah, she's in my class. Hey, you should ask her if she likes me and tell me what she, tell me what she said at lunch. Uh, and, and I remember sitting with guys who had made that request as they sort of like anxiously uh, drum on the table in the lunchroom waiting for Stevie to come back with word. Maybe you've done that like now in your adult life, like, hey, you should, I don't think that's particularly mature or wise, but, but it might have happened to you. So you've had this experience of waiting uh, for word to come back, or maybe you've had to have a difficult conversation, whether it was on text message or over email. Again, not a great way for grown-ups to handle difficulty, but, but maybe you've sent the text and you've seen the red receipt and the three dots are blinking at the bottom and you're going, oh no. And it started blinking and then it stops and then it starts blinking and then it stops and you go, here comes the mother load. This is going to be bad. Or maybe, maybe you've sent out the job application that you've labored over and you've made uh, your best effort to present a solid resume and you're playing the waiting game of whether or not you get the call back from this company that you've um, really just invested all this time in. Uh, if you're like me, and I've sat, I think I've sat through every single one of those experiences, so I'm, I'm citing my own life here. The waiting for word to come back on something crucial like that for me, is utterly incapacitating. Uh, when, when I wait for the three uh, dots at the bottom of the text message to stop blinking and the message to come through, uh, as I wait for the phone call for that resume that I've submitted, um, as I wait for Stevie to tell me if Susie likes me, uh, the, the, the waiting period is, is something that for me is devastatingly um, stifling. I I don't wait well. I become so anxious that I just can't function. 
And, and I'll say, I, I say all this because this is what we see in Paul. Paul. Paul says this, I came to Troas to preach the gospel. And even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus. Paul goes to Troas first with the intention of preaching the gospel, but second with the intention of meeting with Titus to hear how the Corinthians have reacted to what he said. And Titus isn't there. And Paul's stomach is tied in knots and doing backflips to the point that it's incapacitating for him. He, he can't even do what he came for, even though the door is open. He's so anxious that he just has to leave. If we can go back to the middle school metaphor, it's like Stevie saying he'll talk in third period with Susie and then Stevie getting called out sick before lunch. And you go, bro, <laughs> I can't even eat. I'm so worried about what sort of news you're going to bring me. And so Paul says, when I came to Troas, I had my purpose lined up. I knew why I was there. The door was open. I was so anxious that I couldn't even go through with it. That is how concerned I was for you in Corinth. And that to me is, is incredible. Just the level of honesty that Paul demonstrates in this text by just laying his emotional life bare and saying, I know what I should have done was preach the gospel. The door was open. I could have done it. But I care about you so much that it was debilitating to me, that my spirit was not at rest, that Titus wasn't, wasn't there to alleviate my concerns, and I just had to leave. Two things I, I see from this that might be instructive for us one, when was the last time that the salvation or the repentance or the conviction of a brother and sister in the Lord was such a burden upon your spirit that it drove you to your knees? When was the last time that somebody that you knew uh, who had fallen away from the faith or had stumbled in some way, when was the last time that you, that I, I asked myself this question, when was the last time I demonstrated this level of concern for other image bearers in the Lord? Because for Paul, this is a crushing weight. He cares so deeply for these people. Do we care so deeply for the souls of men and women in our lives? But the second thing is this. We know from the rest of the text, and Paul is aware in writing this, that he has been criticized again and again and again for his weakness. He's been criticized for the fact that he's not particularly interesting or funny or doesn't really use great illustrations. Uh, he's been criticized for the fact that bad things always seem to happen to him. He's being criticized because he's weak. The people in Corinth are saying, you're kind of pathetic. Wouldn't you much rather follow this man with bronze skin and biceps than this frumpy old guy who's balding? And the only thing Paul does here is give them more ammunition. He says, I was so emotionally in turmoil, I couldn't even do my job. And he knows that they're going to leap on it and say, why would you follow somebody that is so compromised emotionally, that is so fragile, that's so broken but the reason Paul says it is because Paul realizes something, and you see it throughout all of his letters. If there is to be any success in his ministry, any fruit from his preaching, any conversion from his debate and dialogue with the non-believer in the Greco-Roman world, if anything is to come from his time on this earth in the service of Jesus Christ, it will not come because he is particularly impressive or smart or clever or persuasive. It will become because the sovereign triune God has seen fit to use the broken vessel that is Paul to make something glorious. 
Paul has no problem admitting his weaknesses because he knows that the kingdom of God is not dependent on his strength, but is made perfect and all the more glorious by the fact that God uses broken people to accomplish mighty acts of redemption. And I think many of us are unwilling to be honest about the fractures and the fragments and the damage in our life because we're afraid somehow that this is going to impede our ability to go forth in the gospel. But, but I want you to, what I want you to understand is God has always seen fit to use broken people to accomplish mighty things, not because there's some virtue in being broken per se, but because God wants it to be apparent that these things are not accomplished by our own strength and our own might and our own power, but in his sovereignty in spite of our weakness. There's a, a scholar named Hughes Oliphant Old. Uh, he's a scholar of reformed liturgical worship. And if that's not the most specific niche that you could be in in the scholarly world, I don't know what is. Uh, but he wrote this like 10-volume set on preaching. And, and preachers in evangelicalism in the last 300 years. And he picks a bazillion different preachers and writes three or four page profiles on them. And uh, there's one guy who's relatively popular. You hear him on the radio. His name's John MacArthur. And in his bio of John MacArthur, he says, what is astounding to me about John MacArthur's ministry is that he has grown a church from 100 people to 2,000 people, and he's not good-looking, and he's not a great public speaker. He's not particularly cheery. Like, he doesn't have a winning personality. He's real boring and frumpy. Uh, there's not really anything aesthetically that's appealing to him. They just sing hymns and wear suits and ties. It, it, he, he, I mean, Hughes Oliphant Old is a Christian, but he says, there is nothing about this man's ministry that should make it work. And he follows that up with saying, but isn't that always how the Lord sees fit to work? Man, I hope that you understand, and I hope that I've modeled for this, I hope I've modeled this for you well as the pastor of this ministry, that Christ is most exalted when his people are upfront about their fractures and their brokenness and recognize that he will use them anyways. And that's not to say there's some virtue in reveling in our brokenness. Uh, there's not some sort of virtue in, in just talking about how messed up we are all the time. We should be growing in grace. We should be sanctified. But the only way that that really happens is when we're honest about the fact that we need to grow in grace. So Paul says, I, I couldn't preach in Troas because Titus wasn't there. And that caused his spirit to not be at rest. He goes on in verse 14. And he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Now, in order to apprehend what Paul is getting at here... Uh, we have to recognize he's making a cultural reference that everybody in his original audience would have gotten. Uh, but uh, this reference is removed from us in the same way that if I wrote a letter to Paul and referenced the Super Bowl, he would go, yeah, I'm sure that's great. I love bowls too. Um, so, so the reference here culturally, the, the thing that Paul is getting at is, is this event that was either called a procession or a triumphal procession or a uh, parade or, or something like that. I guess parade would be the modern equivalent. In, in the ancient Roman Empire, when Rome conquered a people group, 
when Rome conquered a region or a province. The custom of Rome was to take uh, the citizens, the kings, the rulers, anybody of prominence from that nation, as well as any nice things they have, uh, like gold or jewelry or linens or things like that, and to bring it back to Rome. And then Caesar would lead a, essentially a ticker tape parade through the streets of Rome with all of these people behind him. Say, look at what I've done. Look at who I've conquered. Look at what I've won for Rome. Look at the gold and the treasure and the things of value that I've brought back from this nation that in my power and in my um, authority as head of Rome, I have destroyed. This was called a triumphal procession. And Paul takes the Christian life and he says it is like Caesar's triumphal procession, but at the head of it is Christ. Here's what's interesting is this is not the first time Paul has mentioned such a procession. Actually, he's talked about a triumphal procession once before that, or I guess later than that in your Bibles in Colossians, which Zida read for us. Uh, he talks about Christ uh, leading the principalities and the authorities and the rulers, rulers of this world through an open shame, which would have been kind of a, a common vernacular phrase for it, like calling the Super Bowl the big game. An open shame would have been a phrase for a triumphal procession. He says he's disarmed the powers of this world and put them to an open shame. So in Colossians, the procession that Paul is talking about is led by Christ, and Christ is bringing behind him Satan and hell and death and all the powers that wreak havoc on the human soul. And in the ancient world, these processions only led to two places, at least for the people who were being dragged along. It led to their death or it led to their slavery. And in Colossians, Paul says this, that Christ in the cross has taken Satan, conquered, defeated, subdued, and made a mockery of him. And in the gospel, parades his victory through the heavenlies, ultimately for Satan to be destroyed at the end of time. But there's another procession in 2 Corinthians that Paul talks about. And in this text, it's not Satan being dragged behind Christ. It's Paul. What's the difference between the two processions? Pay attention to the text again, verse 14. He says, thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession. There are two destinations that these processions went in the ancient world, to death or to service. And the difference between Satan's procession and Paul's procession is that Paul is in Christ. And this is not a parade that is meant to shame. This is a parade that is a victory lap for the Son of God. Paul, Paul wants us to be aware as Christians that our life is one of service. But our king is not a tyrant. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He is a joy to serve. Why? Because we are in Christ. And in Christ, the first procession has led our captor Satan to his destruction. In the procession of 2 Corinthians, the king has gone into the enemy's territory and saved his own enemies from themselves and brought them back as sons. This is what Paul wants to get at here is that to all the world, his life looks like a crap show. 
It looks like an act of humiliation. He's hated by the Corinthians. He's stoned in these different cities. He's opposed by the Jewish leaders. And he says, but spiritually speaking, this is my victory lap. And Christ leads me through it in triumph. And if you're you're not a Christian in in this room, uh, understand that I'm fully convinced that the processions only go in two places. The procession for those that are not in Christ is destruction. The procession for those who are in Christ is glory and joy and victory. So Paul goes on. And he actually continues to describe the procession. And he says this. Christ leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Oh, it wasn't just a big parade in the ancient world when these cities were led, or these people were led through these cities. Uh, The reality was that they also had the priests uh, and the religious leaders of whatever uh, city that they brought their captives through. And the priests would often bring bowls of incense so that uh, if you were anywhere nearby, even if you couldn't see the parade that was taking place, you could smell it. The whole city had the scent of victory, if we're talking about an Old Spice commercial, maybe. The whole city smelled of this victory and this triumph. And you may not be able to see the smoke, but there was a sense in which the presence of the celebration was still among you. And so Paul takes this image and he says that through us, through this procession of the people of God going forth into every tribe and every tongue and every nation, that the scent of God's victory, the fragrance of what he's accomplished in Christ goes forth. There's a lot of interesting studies that have been done on our sense of smell. Uh, I read one in Psychology Today just recently about this lady who, she loves the smell of skunks, which is bizarre. But the reason that she loves the scent of skunks is because it reminds her of when she was younger and her mom would take her on drives after church on a Sunday and they would drive through the back country of their neighborhood. And there's lots of skunks in the back country of wherever she grew up. And so uh, that reminds her of positive things. And so I think it's incredible that, that this image is co-opted. Because the thing about scent uh, is that you can't necessarily see what you smell, but you are affected by it. You're affected by it in emotional ways. I can tell you objectively that the best smell in the world is Pumpkin Harvest and Fall Febreze that was released in 2011. And Febreze has never gotten the formula quite right, and I've emailed them asking them to do it again. (laughs) Because it affects me. Even though I can't, I mean, I spritz the Febreze, I see the cloud, it's gone. But that scent has an effect on me because it reminds me of a time and a place and a season that is important to me. And Paul says, just like, even if you couldn't see the smoke or the parade, you could smell the incense. Wherever the people of God go, the knowledge of God, like an aroma, spreads throughout the area in which they find themselves. And I wonder, in your Christian life, in your uh, business uh, relations, in, in your office, in your classroom... Uh, In the time that you spend with your friends on a Friday night, would you say that this is characteristic of you? That your presence brings with it the knowledge of God like perfume filling a room? It's a question worth asking. 
because you bring with you some sort of sense, some sort of effect that you carry into whatever room you walk into. And Paul says for the Christian, we are to bring the fragrance of the knowledge of God that simply by being around us, we are to bring with us this love of the Lord that is contagious and uh, infectious and affects people. But not everybody is going to love the smell, just like not everybody loves the smell of skunks, like my friend in psychology today does. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. In the last two or three months, I've had a few conversations with friends. Uh, One of them... uh, I wouldn't say grew up in the church, but spent a a period of time in the church in his young adult life. Uh, And the other didn't grow up in the church at all and is just coming to the church for the first time. Uh, One of them is on his way out and the other way, one is on his way in. And I talked just yesterday with a friend who was like, yeah, you know, I mean, I went to church for a couple years, but Christianity, it was just a burden to me. It's just a burden that I didn't feel like I wanted to carry. And in my mind, I, I had this text kind of mulling over because I, I read it before the night before I have to preach it. And I, and I thought to myself, what a perfect picture of what Paul is saying. That for some, this is going to smell like death. It's going to be a burden. It's going to be unpleasant. Guess what? You're going to be wrong, but you may not like the scent of fall pumpkin spice Febreze. Not everybody likes every scent. But I've got another friend who I sat with two or three weeks ago who's joined us several times on our gatherings on Sunday nights. And he said, man, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. There's still a lot of stuff I have to work through. But there's something about this group and the character and the demeanor and the content of what is being said that is incredibly attractive to me. There's something about this church thing that you guys are doing that I find very, very appealing. And I don't know if that makes me a Christian or not. And I said, it doesn't. Just because you like church doesn't make you a Christian. (laughs) But there is something that I I want to be present. I want to be a part of this. And in two people, you see this picture perfectly. To some, it's the scent of death. To others, it is the very power of God unto salvation. But the worst thing you and I could do is change the smell so that more people will like it. Paul goes on. He says, who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He asks this question, and I don't think he means for it to be rhetorical. I think he means for you to answer the question in your mind, uh, to to participate in the triumphal procession of God, to become the uh, fragrance of God wherever we go. Who is sufficient for these things? The answer is nobody. Nobody is sufficient for these things. I am not sufficient for these things. I stand up here half the time and have no idea what the heck I'm doing. And I don't know if that terrifies you or not. It scares me. Nobody is sufficient for these things. But Paul goes on. He doesn't just say, nobody's good enough. We can't do it. Give up. He says, we are not peddlers of God's word. We're men of sincerity commissioned by God. The question is not, Are you sufficient to the task? But has God in his sovereignty called you to it? 
And the same God who has called you to it will keep you through the process, not because you're good enough, not because you're sufficient, but because he delights in using broken tools to make glorious things. I pray that you and I are not peddlers of God's word. I pray that you and I are, are not in this for profit, in this because it ups our social status, that you and I are not in this because it gives us something to do on Sunday nights. You could go to Checkers on a Sunday night and it'd be way sicker. Or Salem's is bumping on the weekends. And Paul says, no, we're not in this because we get something out of it. We're in this because we've been commissioned by God to participate in this triumphal procession of the victory of Christ throughout all times and places and ages. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us a people who, like Paul has said, uh, spread the fragrance of the knowledge of God wherever we go. God, I pray that that our presence would be one uh, that doesn't need to be seen, Lord, to be felt. Uh, Lord, you you don't call us to be obnoxious or uh, loud-mouthed. God, very rarely... Is, is the source of ascent ever seen, oh Lord, but it is felt. And God, I pray that you would make us a people whose presence are felt in the world, Lord, a people whose presence is felt in our churches, a people whose presence is felt in our occupations, on our college campuses, in our discussions. And God, that we would rejoice to celebrate the victory of Christ. And God, that we would long for the day when Christ returns again and when we celebrate that victory with a great feast in his presence. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.